His uncle had the exact same name, so he added an O just to distinguish himself. David O. Selznick. It didn't mean anything, but David was like that, always trying to distinguish himself. That mentality was ingrained in him by his father. Do everything or spend anything to succeed. Always be broke. Throw money around. Give it away. Living beyond your means gives a man confidence. And, like so many of these stories, David O. Selznick is reduced to a boy, trying his entire life to make a distant father proud. But it worked, at least sort of. This mentality pushed him to go from an apprentice to story editor, and then a producer in Hollywood. It didn't hurt marrying into the town's biggest family, too. The daughter of Louis B. Meyer, head of MGM. Everyone assumed it was a marriage for advancement, not love. The rumors didn't matter to Selznick. He had too much on his mind, too much to achieve. So, on this day, on his most audacious project yet, the production had come to a grinding halt. Selznick has just fired the first director. The first of three, actually. And by this point, there have been over 17 screenwriters. They don't lack talent, mind you. One of them is F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know, the guy who introduces us to Jay Gatsby? But Selznick is relentless, even punishing. He throws Fitzgerald into a room with another director from some going-nowhere film called Wizard of Oz. Selznick paces back and forth, popping his thyroid medication, cursing at the stage crew careless enough to make eye contact. The two writers are locked inside working feverishly, surviving on peanuts and bananas. That's all Selznick would let them eat. He thought it was brain food. Seventeen hours go by and they emerge. But it's not good enough. It never is for the producer. He has a vision that nobody else understands, and only he has the drive to make it happen. He insists on managing every detail of the project with a relentless campaign of memos. Selznick loves memos. On this film alone, he writes over 1.5 million words of memos. One reporter says that he fulminates at two stenographers. The first takes notes until her arm is tired. Then the second works until the first has recovered, and so on. At one point, the actor, Leslie Howard, who plays a leading role, gets a little too entitled. Wants more money. Bold move going up against a man like Selznick. Howard has been a box office failure in all of his pictures in recent years without exception. And you might start out by demanding option for a couple of his pictures at least, eventually relinquishing this point if terms are right. But then the actor says he wants to have a say over the script, too. That's where Selznick draws the line. This is his film. Every single part of it. About approval of script or role, you may be as difficult as you please about this, as certainly we do not have to cater to anybody that we want for one of the leads in this picture. 
After three years, nearly 20 writers, five reshoots, and three directors, the film is finally finished. Gone with the Wind will be the biggest blockbuster in history. Welcome to Microbehaviors, a different kind of podcast that uses stories from the past to help you apply the latest behavioral research. In each episode, you'll get one small action that you can do today so you flourish at work, home, and in your relationships. I'm Andrew Webb. This is Microbehaviors. Let's get to it. Bossy, domineering, but very persuasive. Those are the exact words that Selznick's son used to describe his dad. But people put up with it. Why? Well, just look at what he delivered. If you adjust the inflation, Gone with the Wind sold $1.6 billion worth of theater tickets in the U.S., and $3 billion worldwide. It's well ahead of our more recent movies like Avatar or Star Wars. It had 13 Oscar nominations, and it changed the way that we did music, editing. It changed everything in Hollywood. It's no understatement to say that Selznick had changed the game. Hollywood would really never be the same. So the abuse that he doled out gave them a ticket to their dreams. In 1940, Selznick was Hollywood. He was the standard, and he had no intention of slowing down. In his next film, Rebecca, he brought over a new director for the project, some guy making a splash across the pond. It's important you understand that this was a different era for directors. They were replaceable cogs, similar to writers or the crew, especially compared to the omnipotent producers. What Selznick really wanted, of course, was a yes-man, especially because he was adamant the movie must literally follow the novel written a few years earlier. It worked with Gone with the Wind, and, well, look how that turned out. Except this director wasn't a yes-man. Quite the opposite, really. Years later, he reflected on his relationship with Selznick, and he said, Our personalities did not mesh. For him, I was an obstreperous employee. He did not like to hear the word, yes, but. Who did this guy think he was? And where did he get the nerve to disagree with somebody like David O. Selznick? Over and again, the two went at it. The director believed you can do far more with the images than words or dialogue, saying, Whenever possible, you show what is happening, not say it. His mind, it worked that way. Watching the movie unfold in his mind's eye, one actor of the era remembered a table reading, where the director had a total concept of the finished movie before we sat down to read. Two men, two very different visions. It all came to a head when they were shooting the final scene, the grand reveal, really, Selznick wanted the smoke from the burning estate to spell out the letter R. It was a terrible idea, and the director knew it. Instead, the embroidered R should burn itself, a metaphor for the memory of Rebecca. Imagine it. 
The most powerful producer in Hollywood demands something. He can make your career, or at least take it far higher than those small-budget films you were peddling back home. So what should Alfred Hitchcock do? When Selznick makes his demand, Hitchcock does what made him, well, Alfred Hitchcock. He edits the picture in the camera with an entirely innovative way that wouldn't allow anybody to change it. So Selznick can't meddle with his art, and perhaps more importantly, he can't fire him. From this point on, Hitchcock owns the film. He owns Selznick. The film was a triumph, of course, winning Selznick yet another Academy Award. But over the years, critics have given more recognition to Hitchcock. The acclaim should at the very least be shared. But there's something that impresses me more than the techniques and even the talent. When Alfred Hitchcock went against Selznick, he was going against Hollywood itself. He was dismissing common sense, the expected norms of his peers. The pressure to conform to the very people he was trying to impress. That takes nerve, far more, it turns out, than we're willing to admit. When a young Solomon Ash was seven, he felt the excitement of his first Passover. His family were Polish Jews, and that meant pouring a cup of wine for the prophet Elijah. Will he really take a sip? asked the curious boy. Oh, yes, said his uncle. You just watch when the time comes. The very suggestion had an impact. And he was sure, as he studied the cup, he saw the level of wine drop just a bit. Later, as Ash grew, he was curious. Why was he so influenced by his uncle's suggestion? The question not only intrigued him, it molded him, staying with him all the way to the United States and then to Columbia University, where he designed what has become one of the most influential studies in psychology. He showed a group of participants a card with three uneven lines and asked which was the same length as the one on the other card. Take one look at the lines, and it's abundantly obvious. The answer is C. But there was a catch. Inside the room was only one actual participant. The rest of the group were actors who were working for Ash, and they were asked to voice the wrong answer, saying that C was the shorter line. So what would you do? Over 12 different trials, Ash found that 75% of participants conformed to the wrong answer at least once. And when more actors gave the wrong answer, the participant was even more likely to conform. They repeatedly dismissed what they believed, and this is a direct quote, to fit in with the rest of the group, or because they felt someone was better informed. I can't help but think that Ash was empathetic for these people, remembering his own seven-year-old self staring at the glass of wine. Surely, surely his uncle was better informed. Here's another thing that I can't get over. Ash made sure that these lines were easily distinguished. It's not like you could make a rational argument for B. In fact, B was a half inch above the next longest line. 
There's no mistaking that. When we rely too heavily on the whims of others, when we reject what we know to be true so we might save face or gain status, that's what I call half-inch thinking. And it's far more common than we care to admit. Ask yourself, who do you often defer to and why? Is it a school clique, an Instagram influencer, or that political journalist with the hair? What makes them the expert? And why should that stranger in the room know more about the line lengths than you? Sometimes there's a good answer. They've studied a subject. They've experienced more. They've got that hair. How can you not listen to that hair? But too often, if we're not careful, we allow shallow expertise to dictate our deference. And we do it in areas that just simply aren't justified. We become half-inch thinkers. Selznick wanted a half-inch thinker, with a strict adherence to the script and his influential interpretation. He may have been Hollywood at the time, but it was Hitchcock who scoffed at that kind of rigid thinking. He was the one who would have laughed when people chose A or B. That's the kind of boldness that endures. Today, everyone knows who Hitchcock is. Very few have heard of David O. Selznick. When Hitch made a movie, no method was too far-fetched, and the traditional techniques, well, they bored him. On the set one day, the main actress approached Judith Anderson and said, Slap me. She needed to prepare for a scene that involved tears, pain, and all those emotions that you really can't fake. Anderson just stared at her. She couldn't do it. So, the actress moved on. Anderson watched as she approached Hitchcock, whispered something into his ear, and then, as Anderson said it, he just hauled back and slapped her. She reeled and staggered out in front of the camera, looking fragile, hurt, as though her eyes were just about to well up with tears. The actress was ready for the scene. Hitch knew which line was the longest, and more importantly, he would say it. Would you? What's also powerful is that even the mere hint of equivocation can embolden others to avoid half-inch thinking. Researchers recreated Solomon Ash's experiment, and when someone introduced just a little polite doubt, everything changed. Little lines like, maybe I saw it wrong, or I'm totally not sure, but... And these lines gave enough comfort to get others to speak up honor their instincts. It's interesting how those willing to avoid half-inch thinking can impact others, too. It sure turned the tide for directors in Hollywood. Suddenly, producers were losing their dominance, and the trend has continued today. Christopher Nolan, for example, when he directed The Dark Knight Rises, he introduced us to one of the best villains in cinema history not to mention giving Heath Ledger his posthumous Academy Award. But there was something missing from that story. An origin. To this day, we don't know where that Joker came from. In an interview not long ago, Nolan explained, well, what if the Joker doesn't really have an origin story? Say what? That's bold, that's brazen. Hollywood is known for finding a pattern and then sticking to it over and over. Backstories are essential. Sometimes you can get a whole new trilogy out of them. 
so it's rare for somebody to blatantly ignore what's considered common sense. Nolan admitted that even after the success of Batman Begins, that was considered a very controversial thing, and they got a lot of pushback. People were worried. Look, you may not like his ending to Inception, but you have to admire his willingness to avoid half-inch thinking. It's important to note that not all conformity is bad. We are social creatures, after all, and we often bend to ensure cohesion and harmony. We also learn far faster by observing others. What we want, then, is to identify the conformity in our life that limits us, whether it's the influencers on social media that ask us to believe what an ideal life should be, or conforming by omission as our friends tell the kinds of jokes that would make your wife or your kids uncomfortable. I've even, uh, I've even seen myself conform in meetings over and over again, as I realized I was the one to see it differently. When Helen suggests they have a few more beers, he's all for it. Why not? Everyone else is doing it. To refuse would be square, and that must be avoided at all costs. Besides, he's never been high on it before, and he never will. He can handle the stuff. As Ash dug into his studies, he identified two types of conformity. There's informational and normative. In informational conformity, we look to others for information, like what trends are hot, or when we may not totally trust our base of knowledge. We essentially copy the views of others. But normative conformity happens as we change our behavior as a result of somebody else's actions. We'll say things that we know aren't true, dismiss our values, or take that cigarette in our hand for the first time and inhale. We do it to be liked. We do it to avoid pain, not because we believe it's the right thing to do. At the same time, normative conformity doesn't always produce bad behavior. Studies have shown that we pay our fair share of taxes when we think others do it too, or we give more money to charity if we think that that's the social norm. I would argue, though, regardless of the behavior we change, we are doing it because of somebody else, which means we betray ourselves. It's this conformity that muzzles our inner voice. And with each subsequent silencing, we lose a little more of our unique imprint in the world. Until one day we wake up saddened, not only by who we've become, but who we followed along the way. As children, we watch closely our parents and then our friends. We emulate them, trying to find our identity. But there's also something we do as children, and then we stop doing as we grow. We ask why. Not once, but over and over again, we genuinely yearn to know. Out of the mouth of babes. Which leads us to our microbehavior. Here it is. Are you ready? Authentic investigation. Put the others that may be influencing you on the defense by peppering them with honest, authentic questions. The questions don't have to make you feel stupid or stubborn, too. The trick is to be earnest and sincere. 
you're trying to understand, not respond, which can get tough because very quickly you'll spot an opening or a hole in their logic and you'll want to pounce. Trust me, I've made that mistake. Instead, keep asking. Your thirst to understand is what indicts them. It gets more difficult for them to maintain superiority as the questions come and they're forced to evaluate, then reevaluate their own logic. You see that photo of the smiling couple that always seems to post pictures on some distant beach. Well, ask them in the comments, what did they miss most while they were away? What about in the marketing meeting? when you can't drum up the energy or confidence to challenge the director on their font choice. Hey, Gretchen, I'm wondering, what other fonts have you used that also convey that kind of feeling? Authentic investigation is an equalizer in conformity. It even works for hostile conversations and political debates at dinnertime. First, ask to understand, and then ask even more. Can you imagine if participants would have asked this in the study? Hey, I'm a little surprised. What makes you so sure that line is the same length? It's amazing what questions will reveal. As Gone with the Wind was tested with different audiences, David O. Selznick learned how important one key scene was. There was just one problem. It had a swear word. This was a different era, of course, and producers wanted to adhere to the Hollywood production code, a method of keeping films from becoming too sleazy or vulgar. The list of do's and don'ts for any movie was pretty long, and most producers needed to keep it if they wanted future financing. But this was David O. Selznick. As you probably know, the punchline of Gone with the Wind, the one bit of dialogue which forever establishes the future relationship between Scarlet and Rhett, is frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Naturally, I am most desirous of keeping this line. A great deal of the force and drama of Gone with the Wind is dependent upon that word. Selznick would get that word in the movie, of course, and it became the most oft-quoted line in cinema history. If you think about it, though, it really wasn't about Rhett and Scarlet, or even a perfectly placed swear word. It's a perfect example of Selznick's way of handling social pressure. When Rhett says his brash response, he's really speaking on behalf of Selznick to the rest of the world. But my apologies to you, David O. Selznick. The rest of the world doesn't live in Hollywood. It isn't filled with a perfectly designed scene and well-crafted lines. We care what others think. We feel that pressure daily. So, Rhett's line to Scarlet may have been right for the movies, but for the rest of us, who don't live in Hollywood's make-believe, authentic investigation is the way to go. <laughs> <laughs>